She's a mom and she's a teacher. Teaches kindergarten. How awesome is that? How amazing is that? Speaking of teachers, any teachers in the room? This is Teacher Appreciation Week. Teachers, stand up. You can stay up, Miss Penny. Others, stand up. Teachers, stand up. Give these guys a big round of applause. Thank you for what you do. Thank you. Teaching is very important. And that going coinciding with Mother's Day is also a very cool thing. So mothers, uh, we had people stand up a while ago, and probably some more of you have come in the room since then, but thank you for your good work. I think you'll hear some things that are honoring towards mothers today. I hope that as we uh, walk through this very cool passage. We are in a series on puny passages that pack a powerful punch in the Old Testament. It's super fun because we decided, boy, let's pick out some of these hidden gems that are in there. Hidden gems is the lame version. Puny packages packing a powerful punch. Now that's fun. You got to admit, that's a lot of fun. So this is what these are. These are small stories all the way through the Old Testament that are some details about God to us. We'll talk about that in just a second. The uh, really interesting and fun thing is right now we're going into three straight Sundays on warrior princes and uh, cowgirls of the Old Testament. These are some tough chicks. I'm not kidding you. In the first service, we had a baby dedication for Dan and Heather Wood and their little Lily Jewel. It was a lot of fun right here in front of all the kiddos. And I told the story then. When I, they called me and said, oh, she's coming. We're, we're going to the hospital or whatever. I rallied up and got my stuff went over to the hospital, met him. She was done delivering and was like suiting up to go climb peak one. I mean, it was amazing. She was like, okay, let's get on with it. What's next? What's next? You know, tough chicks here in Summit County, which I just love. I just totally love that. You have to be kind of tough anyways when you live in a place where the only difference between winter and spring is that you're sick of snow by spring. That's the only difference. Other than that, it's just, I mean, what a nice January day we're having today, so that's how it works. Okay, a couple of things in this whole process of this series that I would like for you to be able to walk away with that are specific goals. Number one, these are stories of real encounters, real people, real circumstances with a real one true living God. This is not something, these are not Disney stories. These are not just fables that are, have a couple of nice ideas in them. They're not make-believe. Now, there may be some areas in there where there are parable ideas, so don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to defend the full historicity of every piece of the Old Testament. I'm not. At the same time, very much of this, you couldn't make this stuff up. When we went through the Joseph story, I hope you picked up on the intrigue, the cross-pollination, the monkey business, the everything else that goes on in those stories. They're amazing stories, but they're real, real people, real God. Second big goal that we have to try to communicate here is that the scripture that we have is both divine and human, and here's what I mean by that. God inspired people, but he inspired them with the tools that they had, their culture, their constructs, their languages, their capacities that they had. He did not come along and parachute in a 20th century story written with 20th century verbiage into that time frame. That's not how it worked. He used real people. And he encouraged them, inspired them, is the word that we use, to write literally what are some of the most spectacular literary masterpieces 
in the history of the ancient world. I cannot emphasize that enough to you. If you do some research on this, do some study, do some finding out of how these stories compare to their peers around the ancient Near East, in Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, wherever you go around Canaanite literature, there's aspects that tie into this Hebrew, but these Hebrew stories are masterpieces. They're amazing. The, second, or the third thing that I would like for you to walk away with is how these are not only amazing stories, they're constructed in such ways that they were capable of transmitting those verbally. They have all kinds of hooks written into them. This is a perfect example today in Deborah where we find out there's kind of a, a prose version, kind of a man's version, if you want to know the truth. The first half just kind of tells the stories and here's the... Uh, just the facts, ma'am, that kind of approach. Then there is a poetic version that is spectacularly hooked in with all kinds of construction in it, things that are paralleled across to each other, onomatopoeia, which is just fun to say. Isn't that fun to say, onomatopoeia, where you, there's words that sound like what they're trying to communicate, all kinds of things used in this literature that is wonderful for passing on in a verbal way, which is how most people would have had access to it, and then passed in a written way, it was even enhanced more. When it was actually written, we don't even know that a lot of times. We don't. I can tell you that the second half of this, the poetic version in chapter 5 of Judges today, is some of the most ancient Hebrew construction in the entire Bible. It may be the oldest written version that carried brought forward Hebrew that is so archaic, often they don't know how to translate a lot of this stuff if you try to pull it from the Hebrew directly. The fourth thing is this. Stories, all of these stories are designed to communicate this lesson. In suffering, in difficulty, in struggle, in pain, in horror, these individuals, because of faith that they had in God, were given courage to move through to the other side. Sometimes with miraculous outcomes, they couldn't have seen if they would have, they wouldn't have even believed it if you told them ahead of time what it was going to look like. Amazing things. When we talked about Joseph a couple weeks ago, you know, his story to go from literally prison and death imminent at any moment to being the second most powerful guy on the planet in 30 seconds. Who could have predicted that stuff? These stories, though, show that the courage that comes from the faith is worth it to the end, regardless of the outcome. And these stories, by the way, set up this repeating, repeating thing that goes all the way through men, women, everyone, the nation, everyone encountering God in this way. And it's to build forward to our awareness of the story of Jesus because Jesus lived it out more than anybody did. The New Testament grabs back to these stories, particularly in Hebrews chapter 12, and grabs a hold of these and say over and over and over these horrible circumstances and faith are connected to draw us forward to help us understand what happened in the life of Jesus. It's powerful stuff. All right, if you have a Bible... Or, if you'd want to reach in front of you, grab one of the black books there in front of you. Turn to Judges chapter 4. We're going to look at the story of Deborah. Judges 4, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, 
Judges following. So it's about six books in. The book of Judges is an interesting collection of a leadership structure that God set up after Joshua. Joshua was really Moses' general that then took the people across the river for the conquest after they had come out of Egypt, the amazing exodus. Moses leads them through that, but Joshua is one of the spies. He's one of the military generals for them. They wander around for 40 years. They finally go into the country to start the conquest of Canaan, and now we're coming out on the backside. Don't mistakenly believe that they have conquered everything in Israel. They have not. There's still a whole lot of work to do. You'll hear one of the stories today. But there are a lot of places that they have taken. By the way, if you think of right now today in Israel, the story's exactly the same set of circumstances. They are intermingled with their hated enemies. It has not changed, yea, verily, these 4,500 years. It hasn't changed. It's an amazing situation. Again, part of God's design Part of God's design. So in this circumstance, these judges came along. Joshua kind of functioned as a judge at the end of his rule. And then he started putting in different uh, people that started a chain. The first one is Othniel. Othniel was the son of Caleb, who is one of the famous guys from the conquest time. Othniel, then you have uh, Ehud, then you have Shamgar, then you have Deborah. The next guy is Gideon, which you probably could tell his story. The second to the last one is Samson. Samson was a judge. He wasn't a king, his story. And then the last one was a very interesting construct of a, a, the universe, just a one guy that happened like this. One of the greatest prophets in Israel, Samuel, was also a judge for part of his time. And then we have the first kings, and that's how it starts. So we're kind of in the process of these judges. And what happens, you'll see right here, look at with me in verse 1. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What do you mean once again? Well, this is the pattern now that happens through this entire book. God brings them in, gives them victory. They have, they're victorious over the land. They have peace and confidence and prosperity. After several years of peace and prosperity, they start deciding... Well, I don't know that God was really the God who pulled that off. Maybe we should just worship the gods of these countries that we're living in now because they're more handy. And so they start worshiping those gods. They start living outside of the way of, of the following of Yahweh, of their own God. They go right down the dumper. <laughs> they do. They spiral right down morally, ethically, um, Economically, everything happens. God brings someone around them to create trouble and pain and tension. And then God gives them a judge to save them out of that time period. And then they have prosperity and peace. And then it goes right down again. It's a cycle that repeats all the way through this book. Does that, by the way, sound familiar to anybody? Yeah. I don't know where we are in the cycle, but we're headed down. We're definitely not in the time of uh, following God and peace and prosperity anymore. We may believe that, but we're not. All right. So the Lord, verse 2, sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. This is a 
you know, as a geographical reference, but this king, Jabin, is their pain in the neck. He's right in the middle of them and causing them trouble. The commander of his army is Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim, because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Get a picture of this. The technology is clearly weighed in the favor of the Canaanites, not the Israelites. These chariots are like, they have some kind of iron construct. We don't know what the pieces are that are part of it. If it's the shafts and the wheels, if there's armor on the, we don't know that. We don't get the picture. The Israelites don't have it. We don't know why that is. It's quite possible the Israelites had lived 400 years in Egypt. The Egyptians were the greatest charioteers in the history of the world. The Israelites might have actually come up with the original ideas for these things, and the Canaanites took them from them. We don't know all of the details. But they are in fear, and technologically, they are at the disadvantage against this army that, that is their oppressors now living in the middle of them. It's important to recognize that. This is not just a matter of they're kind of too lazy. They literally are in fear. And we'll pick up on some of that. Because uh, the 900 chariots, verse 4, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was leading Israel at that time. Now, as this moves forward, you see one little piece here that's very interesting about Deborah. I read half a dozen commentaries. Very often the commentaries assume Deborah is in this position of leadership because no man would take it. That is not what this says. I don't care what language you read it in. Deborah not only is described here as a leader, she's now put in the category of prophetess. We'll see a little bit more about her leadership here in a minute that's obvious. And it's a very interesting thing because her connection, this is a deep parallel back to Miriam. Do you remember Miriam in Moses' story, his sister? Miriam was a judge that was in charge and helping uh, with disputes and settling disputes as a nation. She was also a leader in a lot of different ways. She was a prophetess. She also was a singer of victory songs that will be part of Deborah's story as well. The connections between Miriam, Miriam is like a prototype of Deborah. And there is also, once again, no evidence at all that she was put in that role purely because no man was, was willing to step up to the plate. It's just not true. Bad idea for us to read into Scripture things that are not there. Okay? Oops. Darken myself out here. Bump the button. She had held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came to her to have her dispute settled. She had an established place that they knew where this was, that people around the country, when they needed something settled, this is, by the way, the only description of a judge fully functioning as a judge in the entire book. She was doing her job as it had been described, and she was doing it very efficiently, very well. She was not like an afterthought. This description has great honor wrapped up in it. So she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh and Naphtali. Now, this is just his tribe and his place and who his dad is. This is the general that she's sending to say, I need you to help me rally some troops here. 
The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun, lead the way to Mount Tabor. I'll lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army. Mount Tabor, by the way, when you drive down the hill and come around that corner and you see that great big spaceship that's like the Jefferson County stuff or whatever, you got the two table mountains behind there. That's exactly how the construct of this is, where it's a big, there's a high climb up and then a very flat top. And so they would gather their troops. They would have the upper hand because they could see what was going on. This was a common place where people gathered for battles all through the history of Israel. But she says to him, go take them, gather up on Mount Tabor. What they would typically do would be sacrifice. They would ask God for blessing. They would find out what he had in mind. And I will lure Sisera in with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Now, here's where Barak checks out. Barak says, wait, if you want me to go fight from the high ground, I'm happy to do that. But if you want me to go fight down in the river in that wadi down there where it is, that's a mess. We can't see what's going on. We're way outnumbered. They've got chariots. We don't have a chance and you see that as he basically bails out on the idea. He says, but if you go with me, I'll go. If you don't want to go with me, then I'm not going to go. And he bails out on a, on a very good leadership idea. Now, you can insert your favorite Barack bailing out on good leadership. You can insert that joke right there. I'm not going to do it for you. But very well, Deborah says, I'll go with you. But because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. And when she told that story, that's exactly what happens. Now, this is not Deborah that he's going to hand her over to Sisera. He's going to hand Sisera over to JL that we're going to learn about in a few minutes. But the opportunity was there for Barak. She's the one who invited him to the party. And he was like, you know, I trust you to some degree, but I'm not sure you've got good thinking going on here. And that's just dumb military strategy to go down in that river valley. Once again, not trusting leadership, which is the common pattern all the way through this whole book, by the way, whether the leader's a man or a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. He summoned the troops, 10,000 men followed, verse 11. Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobad, Moses' brother-in-law. What in the world does that have anything to do with anything? Heber is going to play out because he's the husband of Jael that we're going to meet in a few minutes. Sisera thinks the Kenites are favorable to the Canaanites because that's been their typical deal. What he doesn't know is there's a connection to Moses through this family, and they are far more allied with the Israelites at this point than they are with the Canaanites. Sisera doesn't know that, and you'll see that that shows up in his behaviors here in a few minutes. So verse 12, when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinamah, had gone to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his chariots and goes for war. And at this point, he has great confidence, and he should have. We outnumber them. We have far better technology. We're just going to go clean these guys up. We'll go through and plunder a bunch of stuff, take their their you know, nice coats and their women, and we'll take that home with us like we always do, and it'll be the usual deal. So he rallies up his troops to go. Then verse 14, Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. What? Why? Why this day? You're going to see something that happens here that literally is miraculous in their time frame. 
And Deborah has insight from God that is strategic that nobody else has. Now, I don't know, again, how you're, what kind of, you're putting her in in the role of leadership. God is clearly directing through this amazing woman and speaking through her, not the men. Go, this is the day. Hasn't the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor. He actually listened to her. And he took his troops with him. And at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and army by the sword. This is the first glimpse we get. It comes up all through this Old Testament literature that they viewed theologically, they viewed their battles as being God, their divine warrior, at war for them. Their theology was God is our warrior. He fights for us. Now, when I read that and started reading through, because you'll see in the poetic version, she just rings the bell, rings the bell, rings the bell to give credit for this victory to God over and over and over. And I have to ask you this question. Their theology was such that they believed God fought for them. What's our theology? What do you think? Do you recognize that in the millennial culture, who there, this room was half full of millennials yesterday as we had a, a memorial for a 22 young man that died last week, and their mindset is we are on our own in this universe. We are on our own. We are all alone. I got to get what I can get for me. I got to take advantage of what I can take advantage. There is no inherent position in their thinking that God would fight for me. God is on my side. God is an ally of mine. And I got to ask you this. What does that mean for our future theologically? What, what can we do and say as a church? How can we live in such a way that it literally starts to do what these stories did to say, now, does it have to resonate exactly the same way? Like God is our, our uh, you know, that's what we have God for, is to fight our battles. I don't think it has to look like that. But are, has he truly left us all alone in the universe? I don't think so. You read these stories, there's no evidence that God just decided, well, I'll do this for these guys because this is Old Testament, and then later it'll be a different story. We've got some work to do in communicating theology, understanding who God is and how he wants to live in this world in the 21st century because the motion is going away from the sense that we can trust God truly is. So, verse 15, the Lord routed. Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. Now, you, you say to yourself, well, how did this happen? How did it go down? We're going to find out in the poetic version. Here's the miracle. This is a very dry time in their uh, flow of their cycle of water. They did not get water very often. A bunch of you, how many of you have been over to Moab or Canyonlands or over in the, yeah, the Utah desert? You know how you can be in one place, and it's raining up in the Monte LaSalle's or someplace else, and all of a sudden the water just shows up, right? That's exactly what happens here. 
They've got their chariots with all the iron and everything. They're down in the wadi trying to pull the chariots through. The water shows up. Now, what good are chariots in that slop? If you've been in that wet sand, you know what I'm talking about. It is non-negotiable. You cannot navigate through that stuff. And all of a sudden, their chariots are worthless to them. It changes the whole tenor of the entire thing, and Israel kicks them. That's what happens. But watch what happens after this. So Sisera abandons. He runs, the general, but Barak pursues him. And the, the troops are following, and you can just see this going on because the decision is, we don't just want to win this, this little battle. We want to cut the head off. That's what we want to do. And I use that imagery on purpose because of what's going to happen here. So Sisera fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. It comes back. Now, why does it mention the tent of Jael? Why would he go to the tent of the woman? Where you just went in your mind, that's exactly what was going on here. He goes to the tent of the woman because he wants woman. That's what he wants. This, he easily could have gone to men where he was going and tried to find an ally and say, hey, guys, protect me. There was very much a sense of the expectation. If somebody shows up in your tent, you, because of the rules of hospitality, you take them in, you protect them, you feed them. No matter what, even if they're your hated enemy, you take care of them. She does not do that, by the way. I don't think that uh, murder is part of the protocol uh, but uh, for you know, good hospitality. But that's what happens in here. He goes to her for the right reasons. Now, you know he wants some water. He's going to talk about that. And he wants some loving. That's what he wants. So he trusts her. He goes there. Jael went out to meet him and says, listen to this spider to the fly. Come on in, my Lord. Come on in. Don't be afraid. <laughs> I mean, you can hear it as she's literally wooing him in. There's seduction going on here. It's clear in the Hebrew. So he entered the tent, and she puts a covering over him. This is not just like he just, she threw a, a blanket on him. This is because sexuality is going on. And then he says, I'm thirsty. She's building trust. He's, she brings him water. Then he says, stand in the doorway, and if somebody comes by, tell them that I'm not here. And she says, okay, I got you covered. Literally, got you covered. But J.L., verse 21, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and waited for him while he's sound asleep. She's taking care of him, and he falls into a deep sleep. And then verse the. the Second half of 21, she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and good thing they told us, he died. <laughs> like we couldn't have figured that one out. Now, you say to yourself, wait, what's going on here? The women pitched the tents in these Bedouin societies. She was highly trained in how to use a tent peg and how to use that hammer that drove that tent peg. She was a pro, okay? She did not go get some other you know, get a sword or something she was maybe less familiar with. She used the tools that she had. One was her body. Another was her ability to provide hospitality and build safety and, and make him believe that it was, it was, he was safe. And three, she used a hammer and a big old tent stake. This is pretty brutal, but it's also amazing on top of it all, J.L. is not an Israelite woman. She's a Kenite. God uses 
woman, non-Israelite, uses her sexuality. I mean, you have to come to terms with the reality of this. How God accomplishes. This whole book of Judges is full of these stories where what you would have expected to have happened gets flipped all the way over on its head and God accomplishes his work in ways that would be non-typical. On that day, excuse me, he, Barak comes by and he's looking for Sisera and she says, I got him in here, he's kind of pinned down right for a minute. I don't know, I've got him kind of, he's uh, a little... And on that day, God not only subdued Sisera, but subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, because it gave the courage and the, it turned the battle, the, the entire tides, to where the Israelites didn't just fight Sisera and his men. They go after the king of the Canaanites and flip the whole system in the country over on its head in one day. Verse Chapter 5. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. Here she's living into this reflection of what she had learned from the story of Miriam. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. By the way, do you happen to know the Hebrew word for praise? It's Barak. Think that's a coincidence? Praise shows up a bunch in here, and it is very clear that she is kind of putting a little jab here. There's a little bit of poking at. It's very intentional. Praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, rulers. I will sing to the Lord. Hear who she gives credit. It's not you kings. It's the Lord. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. O Lord, when you went out from Seir and when you marched from the land of Eden, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down the water. This is an amazing experience, God, that you did this. The mountains quaked before the Lord. What does she hearken back to here? The one of Sinai. She goes, wait, God's done this with the thunderstorms before. We've seen this. We've heard about this. And God did it again on our behalf today. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, she draws the fact that there's two people, one a judge, Shamgar, the other Jael, neither of which were Israelites that God chose to use. She highlights that here. And in those days, though, it was tough for them. The roads were abandoned. Villagers took to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased until I, Deborah, arose. And look where you thought I forgot about Mother's Day. I didn't. I rose, Deborah, as a mother in Israel. Mothers, she is going to pick up this theme She's going to hit it again at the end. This idea of her motherhood. Deborah celebrates this as God, you literally equipped me for this job to mother Israel. You equipped me for this in such a way that I, I'm just amazed by that. I am in awe of how motherhood has helped me understand what it means to love a people, what it means to care for, what it means to sacrifice for, what it means to step up for. Mothers, you bring an example to us that is unparalleled. 
It's, it, is, it is different from anybody else. It's not that it's so isolated that it's disconnected from humanity, thankfully. But it is a special conduit to understanding. By the way, Paul picks up the same imagery when he's talking to the Thessalonians. And he says, hey, I cared for you as a mother would care for her children. It's beautiful. Paul is not a mother, but he's like, I've watched mothers. I love watching, walking into our mops meetings. And here's these moms of all these little rag, rugrats, right? And telling these moms, everything that is right in the universe is you. You represent it in here. You have capacity beyond bounds. You have energy. You have love. You have patience. You have courage. Amazing power as a mother. Deborah picks up on that right here. At that time, verse 8, they chose other gods, and when they would come to the city gates, there was war there. There was no support from Israel. But my heart is with Israel's princesses and the, the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. She pulls the praise out again. You who ride on white donkeys, sitting on your blankets, and you who walk along the road. She's just basically picking out some different people, representations in the cultural construct. She's saying, all of you have the chance to praise God. You have the freedom to do that now because God has given us victory. And in my leadership as Deborah, this country has gotten better. And now today, it's way better than what you've been able to experience. Before, you couldn't even walk on the roads. You had to sneak around in the back ways to get from town to town. Now you can just walk right up. This voice of the singers, verse 11, the, the voice of the singers at the watering places can praise God. Where they had their watering holes for their animals as the caravans went through, they would stop and there were people there at those watering holes who would pronounce and often sing the information of what's going on. It was, you know, they didn't have CNN, right? They didn't have Twitter feeds. So they had to trust something else, and these people at these watering holes would announce, hey, here's what just happened in Israel. And she says, they will recite the righteous acts of the Lord and the righteous acts of his warriors in Israel. She parallels the work of God with the work, the righteous works of the warriors. Pretty powerful stuff. This will be God pronounced. Then the people of the Lord will go to the city gates and they'll be fine. Then it says, it starts through a process here. Wake up, everyone. It's time. She's kind of describing what happened as they were getting ready to go. She had to wake up herself. And then she wakes up Barak. And then she starts going through, listing the different tribes. Ephraim, Benjamin, Makur, who is a, a little subgroup of Benjamin, Zebulun, Issachar, Reuben, Gilead, Dan, Asher, and she comes back to Zebulun and Naphtali because they were the main contributors of the, the warriors in this thing. And she cheers their willingness or says to them, guys, where were you? You were asleep. You didn't wake up. She's honest about this as a leader. She had been a judge for long enough to know if we're going to talk about fairness, we're going to talk about righteous, we're going to talk about legitimate, we got to be honest about this. And so she is. The kings of Canaan fought, verse 19, but verse, uh, the end of it, they carried off no plunder. 
There was no victory on their part this time. It's a change, guys. The heavens and the stars fought. They all believed that the stars were part of the construct. They didn't know how it worked, but they don't, she doesn't give the credit to the stars. She gives the credit to God using the stars. The river came and swept him away. There was galloping, galloping steeds. It's this, again, this sound. You can hear the sound in what she's saying in the Hebrew. It sounds just like horse hooves hitting the ground. 24, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed. And he, she tells the story in, in a poem of what she did. 26, her hand reached for the tent peg. Her right hand grabbed the workman's hammer. And then she struck Sisera. And when you hear this, this is so repetitive. This is not uh, just an, oh, I forgot I already wrote that already. This is multiplication of how amazing this is. And also... How shameful to the man, Sisera, the general, that he fell into the hands of the woman. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Another little side note, Ashtoreth, the god of the Canaanites, was known as the goddess who crushes heads. Think she didn't talk about that on purpose? At her feet, he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Just in case you didn't get it before, dead. And then she switches. And this is something that only a mom could do. This is miraculous. It's so beautiful. At the very front end, remember, she drew the picture of herself as a mother of Israel. She goes all the way to the back end of this poem, and she picks up another mother. Through the window, Sisera's mother looked. This is the general who's pegged to the floor in jail's tent. Sisera's mother, behind the lattice, she cries out, Why is this coming so long? Why is the clatter of this chariot delayed? The wisest ladies answer her, and indeed, she keeps saying to herself, well, they're probably just dividing up the spoils and the plunder, the beautiful garments. She literally hearkens to another mother who she can relate to. And moms, some of you have, have felt that sense of, my son is away somewhere, somewhere very dangerous. It may be somewhere like Boulder, or it may be, it may be somewhere as dangerous as Afghanistan. And only a mom can relate this way. She relates to, but she says, you know what, God? I know what she's feeling right now. And uh, it's not going to be a good day in her town. But we trust you. You're the one who wins the victories. Look at the contrast. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. This is power and compassion in the same moment. Deborah brings to the structure of leadership something that is just unparalleled. It's beautiful. It's amazing. A couple quick things. Let's just, first of all, their theology is they were divine warrior theology, another key element. There was a contrast in these roles. Competence and variance is what I'd like to point out here. Men, women in different roles, 
Was there competence there? At what point will we recognize that competence is not the real issue in women in leadership roles? You know, all I have to do is look at the world around us. Golda Meir, Maggie Thatcher, Eleanor Roosevelt, um, Condoleezza Rice. Competence is not the issue. There is variance. Women and men are different. Moms are different. They are. But there's competence there. The third thing, key element. Mothers are examples for us. Moms, this Deborah example as a mother is a beautiful picture of God's victory and at the same time the awareness of the fact of the compassion of a mother, the love, the nurture. Thank you for who you are and what you bring to this world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this story. These little stories tucked away in the Old Testament are so fantastic. The courage of Deborah in a very tough circumstance trying to navigate in a man's world had to have been tough. And yet she has power, she has passion, she has compassion, she has love, care. She sees her people through your eyes. Thank you for the example that she was for us. Thank you for every mom in here. Give them courage for today and tomorrow. Um, Thank you. We honor you, we worship you, and uh, do all that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a couple chances for response. Ushers, if you'd like to come, we um, have our offering time, which is a, a chance for a response. If you'd like to respond today through the offering, that's one way. And then we're going to also have a time of uh, communion that we'll celebrate together as soon as the offering.